with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, oh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Just first four verses. Paul's writing to the Corinthians here and he says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you receive, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And then finally, to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Start reading with verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, I do have a bit of admission to make. Uh, sometimes I really hate to be around pastors. Now that might sound a little strange, but uh, there's this thing that happens when pastors get together. And I've seen it even in healthy networks and in healthy contexts where pastors will, they'll, they'll talk to one another and they'll say, you know, hi, I'm, I'm David or I'm Paul or I'm Bubba, you know, whatever the name is. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm from such and such a church. And, oh, hi, you know, hi, I'm Rod. I'm from City Temple. And then, how big is your church? Always. And you can start seeing in a, any group of pastors what they start to do. Uh, is they start to rank themselves in order. You know, so the person that has the biggest church, you know, tends to be up at, up at the top of the, of the queue, and the person with the smallest church, you know, the smaller it goes, you start getting, at some point in time, I mean, for, for me, at some point in time, I start getting desperate to find somebody that has fewer than 50 people. And it's kind of harder to do in the States, you know. Uh, and, 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 and what ends up happening is that depending on where you are in that queue, you start to have a sense of shame about how big your church was. A few years ago, I was doing something at HarvestNet, a presentation, and, and, I, and I told people, I said, well, you know, I want to deal with this question right away. How big is your church? And I said, well, we've got about 8,000 involved in worship. Uh, I said, we've got about 4,000 involved in our homeless outreach. At that time, we were doing the winter shelter. I said, there's about 127 uh, that support me directly. 
Uh, so after I finished all that, I said, yeah, so overall, our church is about 55,000 square feet. Uh, to try to deal with that. But it really brings up something that is a real problem. And the problem is, for many people, the church has enhanced their sense of shame. It has not healed their sense of shame. And it's not only pastors, there are a lot of Christians that end up not, not, not getting free from shame, but coming into a church gathering and feeling more bound up by shame. But that's not only in a sense in the, in the churches. You know, unfortunately, the church hasn't really addressed this, but neither has secular psychology many times that simply just tries to help people compensate for their sense of shame. They try to help people say, well, well, you're enough. You don't need to be ashamed. You don't have anything to be ashamed of. You know, so, so have some positive thinking and you can overcome this, share it, and, and deal with it. And the problem is, both for the church and, and for the unchurched, the church has not been a place that has broken the power of shame off the lives of people. Even our theology for much of the West all the books that are written and things like that, most of Western theology deals with guilt, but it doesn't deal with shame. And yet, if you don't deal with the shame issue, people will never really feel free from the guilt issue. So it's a real challenge that we face, but it's not what God intended. God has intended that we as his people would live our lives free from shame, that we would live overcoming shame. That is God's plan, and we need to embrace his plan and see what he has done for us, because until we ourselves, who are in the church of Jesus Christ, learn how to overcome that power of shame in our lives, we will not be instruments of the good news of Jesus Christ to help those in the world do it. Now, we gave a definition last week of shame, and I want to repeat that for you. You know, what is shame? Shame is this painful sensation that you, in your very self and identity, are, or at least appear to be, ugly, disgraceful, damaged, flawed, defective, or just inadequate, usually because of something you have done or that has been done to you that indicates a defect in you as a person. And sometimes we get shame because somebody around us is feeling that and has experienced that. And so because we're connected with them, we start to feel shame in that connection with them. And shame is a powerful emotion. It's a powerful, painful emotion. And many psychologists today are saying that shame is probably the primary emotion primary painful emotion, not only in the West, but around the globe that human beings have to deal with, not only individually, but also corporately. It is a powerful reality. Some societies are so bound up by the reality that shame affects the whole society, but it doesn't have to be society-wide. It can be social groups, it can be any number of groups of people, but shame has real power and it needs to be dealt with. In order to deal with this, we need to understand, first of all, how God created us. 
Now last week I told you that God created us to live without shame. That was our design as human beings is to have life without shame. And He did that by giving us an unhindered relationship with God as our Creator. He gave us a purpose, a God-given purpose. And He also put us in vulnerable relationships with other people. Adam and Eve were the prototype of this, but we all were to benefit from this. And we were to live without shame in that threefold reality of a relationship with God, a relationship with our purpose, and a relationship with other people. Today we see a little bit more about how God created us. Not only did He create us for that life without shame, but we have to understand that God created us as people who have worth and value before Him. The Bible tells us that we're all created in the image of God. And because we're created in the image of God, every single human being has value and has worth. There is not a single human being that has been created or lives today that has not been created in the image of God. There's not a single human being that does not have an inherent value and worth because they were created in the image of God. And we also were created for relationship with one another. We weren't created in an isolated way. We have worth and value because we were created for one another. Adam and Eve were created for one another. And we are created for one another. Whether or not you're married, you know, we are created for other people, for other human beings. And because of that, according to the Bible, we have an inherent value and worth. But we also need to understand another really important factor when it comes to shame. We were created as not enough. We were created to be incomplete by ourselves. We were created as not enough by ourselves. God said to Adam, it's not good that Adam is alone. I'm going to create a helper suitable for him. Adam was insufficient in and of himself. We were created as not enough. We were created needing other people and we were created with a need for God. And so any approach to dealing with the shame that says, oh, you just need to tell yourself that you're enough, that's not going to work. Because we're not enough. We're not enough by ourselves. And this was not a mistake on God's part. God created us this way. He created us as not enough, not, not strong enough by ourselves. He created us as incomplete. There's no self-help book that we can read to find completion in and of ourselves. He created us as people who need connection. Human beings are inherently social beings. We cannot live, we cannot exist without connection with other human beings. And God did this on purpose. This is not a flaw in our DNA. It is not a flaw in our design. It is not an accidental byproduct of what God did. God did this purposefully. He created us this way. 
where we're not enough, we're incomplete, we need connection with other people. That was his design. And we have to remember these things if we're going to deal with shame. Because nobody can say, well, I'm enough so I can overcome shame. You can't. We cannot overcome shame in a way that's contrary to the way God designed us as human beings. So we have to understand, this is the way God created us. He created us with relationship with Him, with purpose, with relationship with other people. He created us as people who have an inherent worth and value because we're created in His image and we're created for relationship with one another. But He also created us as incomplete, imperfect people. He didn't create us with sin. Imperfection is not the same as sin. He created us as incomplete people who needed Him, who needed one another, who were not enough in themselves. And once we understand the way that we're created, then we'll now start to see how Satan began to distort that with Eve. Because to understand shame, we have to understand how Satan through sin disfigured God's good creation with shame and its consequences. So Satan has a shame induction strategy. And Satan always uses this, even today. There's a fourfold strategy that Satan uses to induce shame in our lives and then use the shame we are feeling to manipulate us and control us. And as long as you cannot overcome the shame, you are controlled by those who can shame you. Satan can control you by manipulating shame in your life. Your, your relatives can control you by manipulating shame in your life. And they often will use the same shame induction strategy as Satan does. So what, what does he do here? First of all, he twists the truth about God and what God says. And in doing so, he begins to distort our relationship with God. We're susceptible as human beings to this thing. So what does he do with, with Eve? He comes to Eve and says, is it, is it really true? I, I, this is surprising to me, Eve, but is this really true that God said you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Sounds kind of ridiculous to me. What is he doing? He begins by distorting God who he is and what he said to Eve. And this is, how, how does he do this? He does this because remember, God gave Adam the command, you can eat of any tree of the garden, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat of the tree of life, that's a good one for you. It's going to keep you alive, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this is God's word. And notice how, you know, for most of us, we don't get God's word directly like Adam did. We have it through the Bible. We have it where God speaks to us. And so Satan comes, and his first thing is to distort what God says, because by distorting what God says, he gives us a distorted picture of who God is. Notice what he's doing. He's essentially saying, hey, Eve... God doesn't really want the best for you. God is a killjoy. He's a spoil sport. Can we hear this in so many people's minds? Oh, well, you know, if, if, if I can't have sex outside of marriage, you know, God's just depriving me of my fun. He's depriving me of a good time. He's depriving me of the, the sense of fulfillment that I could have by having sex with whomever I want to have sex with. 
And this is the kind of thing that happens. That's the first part of the strategy. Satan always works to distort God's, who God is and what God has said. And we see that. That's all over liberal Christianity. But it's not only liberal Christianity, it's also conservative Christianity. And if it's in liberal and, and, and some, some forms of conservative Christianity, it's, it's everywhere. That's his first step. That's his first step. That's why the Bible is so important. Really looking to see what God says. Then notice what he does next. Now Eve, Eve replies. Notice how Eve replies. She says, oh no, 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 no. Uh, he said we could eat of any of the trees of the garden except for that one there in the middle of the garden where he says don't eat of that, don't even touch it. Now that was probably Adam, you know, that said to Eve, hey Eve, God said don't eat of this, we shouldn't even touch it. You know, let's just stay clear of this, don't get tempted by this and all of this, you know, don't even touch it. Now I, I kind of wonder, you know, where was Adam in all of this? Because clearly he was there. You know, so typical male fashion, he kind of, you know, he doesn't say anything, right? And then later blames Eve. That's eh, the way we do it. So then notice what he does next. He says, oh, Eve, God knows you're not going to die. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like him. You'll be like God. So, so what is he doing here? He's demeaning Eve's worth as human beings created in God's image. He's essentially saying, you know, Eve, if God really loved you, if you were really a valuable person, he wouldn't have restricted anything for you. So he's attacking her worth. He's attacking her sense of relationship with God. And that's the second thing that Satan always does to lead us into shame. And then, notice what Satan does. He begins to insinuate, you know, Eve, if you ate of this, you would be like God. In other words, what is he saying? He is telling Eve that, Eve, if you would only eat of this, of this fruit, you would be good enough. If you would only eat of this fruit, you would be complete because you're going to be like God. If you only take a bite of this, God knows that you'll no longer need Him. And that's why He doesn't want you to do this. He knows that you would live life on your own and you could live life more fully if you only take, take this fruit and eat of this fruit. And so God is trying to keep you from being a complete human being. You see the process. He twists and distorts who God is then he twists and distorts her sense of worth and relationship with God, and then he tries to persuade her to live life on her own, to try to be independent. And all sin is where we're trying to live independently of God in his ways. That's really the, the source of all sin. That's really the source of all sin. And so because he does this, he starts to disfigure her sense of her humanity. And then he is manipulating her and her seeking to be enough, her seeking to be complete in and of herself. He starts to manipulate it in order to corrupt others. And so what does she do? She takes a bite and then she gives it to Adam and Adam chooses to eat of the fruit and so here is Eve, first 
God is distorted. Second, her sense of worth is distorted. Third, then, her humanity is distorted. There's a lie that says she can be enough. And in her quest to be enough, she starts saying, well, Adam, you should try this too because maybe we can each be enough together and independent one of one another. And he disconnects us relationally. You see that process, and Satan is always doing that. He's always twisting God and God's words. He's always twisting the worth of human beings as created in the image of God. He's always trying to persuade us that we can do something where we'll be enough, we'll be sufficient, we can be independent, we can be on our own, we can be our own person. He's always deluding us for that. And then in the process of deluding us that we can be on our own, he also deceives us that we don't need one another and because of this they sinned because of this Adam and Eve sinned and because of their sin immediately shame enters the picture and shame is the first result of the disfigurement of sin shame is the first thing that sin provokes in us and it's one of the reasons why people cannot be just overcome shame on their own because we cannot overcome sin on our own. And shame is always there. And so shame is the first result. And we feel shame, and this is important, we feel shame because something is now fundamentally wrong with us. Right now, because of sin, our humanity has been completely flawed and distorted. And shame comes in because we realize that our humanity is now flawed and distorted. We realize that something is wrong with us. And that's why we feel shame. Because we know that because of sin, and because we're all in sin, there is something fundamentally at odds with the way that we've been created to be, something at odds with our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And then we experience the shame dynamic. It's exactly what happened to Adam. God comes looking for him. He says, hey, you know, where are you at, Adam? And Adam says, hey, I was naked, so I became afraid, then I hid myself. And that's the shame dynamic. First of all, we realize that we're naked. We realize that we're vulnerable. We realize that there's nothing protecting the bits of us that we think are ugly or less attractive. So we're naked, and because of that, we start to be afraid. We're afraid that God's gonna reject us. We're afraid that other people are gonna reject us. We're afraid that we're not sufficient, that we're not enough. We're afraid that something is fundamentally wrong with us. So what do we do? We hide ourselves. And this is what people are doing constantly when they experience shame. They experience shame because they realize they're naked, they realize something is fundamentally wrong, so they're afraid because of that. So what do they do? They hide themselves. And we hide ourselves not behind fig leaves like Adam and Eve did, but we hide ourselves behind other people, behind our Facebook page, behind our Instagram page, behind our, our public reality. We hide ourselves behind our relationships. We hide ourselves behind our, our religiosity. We hide ourselves in any number of ways. But that's the shame dynamic. And because we have the shame dynamic, we then start to play what I call the shame game. And the shame game is this. We try to shame other people or pass on our shame. Because if we can find somebody 
who is more shameful than we are and then expose them, we don't have to expose our shame. Or maybe we can blame somebody else. So I love what happens here. You, you read it. It's, it's so funny. Adam, Adam, God says, Adam, you know, did you eat of the tree? Oh, oh well, well, oh. Okay, yeah, I ate of the tree, but the woman that you gave me, you did this to me, that woman, she forced me to eat. It's like she put me down, she pinned me on the ground, and you know, because you made her stronger than I am, and that woman, she just put me down, and she took that apple, and she just jammed it down my throat and said, you eat of this, you're going to die. You know, and, and, then, and then Eve, what'd you do? Oh, it's that serpent. It's that really bad, it's the devil that made me do it. By golly, the devil made me do it. I, I just didn't have control of myself. It was like the devil, he made me do it. And we're passing the blame, and then it's, a, you know, Satan, it's going all around, and we do this all the time. So we experience the shame dynamic, which drives us into the shame game, and we want to pass the shame on to somebody else. Oh, it's our children's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my husband's fault. It's the church's fault. It's the government's fault. It's my education's fault. It's whatever you want to put in there's fault. And this is the ongoing dynamic that is happening. And because of this shame dynamic and the shame game, shame fully disrupts life in this world. We are alienated from God and the life that he gives. There is enmity in our world. There is open hostility. You know the reason why we have a, a war in Syria? The reason why we're having conflicts all around the world is this enmity that's come into our world because of shame. It's the enmity that comes. You can almost trace, it's overhanging a little bit, but you can almost say that the entirety of World War II was because of shame. Because the nations of the world were determined to shame Germany. And because of that, Hitler could rise up and control a nation because of its shame. And this is happening all the time. There's enmity in our world because of this, alienation from God, and all of a sudden, every human being has entered the struggle to be enough and complete by ourselves. This is happening all around us. Why is the self-help section of, of the library one of the biggest sections? It's because everybody's trying to be complete. Everybody's trying to be enough in and of themselves. And they can't quite get there. And we get to the point where we then begin to deceive ourselves and say, well, I am enough, I am enough. Like if we say it enough, it means it is enough. But it doesn't. And people know, everybody knows that there's something fundamentally wrong with our humanity, but most people don't want to face it, and most people don't want to acknowledge it. Because to do so would say, well, maybe I'm not enough. And because of shame, we have pain and disintegration in our relationships. Almost all relational pain that you experience is because of shame. Almost all. It's because of shame. And because of shame in our world, we are struggle. We have this struggle. We have this cursing and pain, according to Genesis 3. God says, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you, and now you're going to fight. Now you're going to struggle to produce something from the, from the ground. 
And because of shame, we struggle in discerning and fulfilling our purpose. Every person that's struggling in, and to discern and fulfill their purpose struggles because of shame. I, mean, I remember when, uh, when uh, I, would, I went into the ministry, how sad my dad was. He's like, well, you do this, you're not going to make any money. I remember when I, when I got my doctorate, and first thing he asked me was, okay, when you get your doctorate, does this mean you're going to get paid more? I mean, it was an issue for him. He felt ashamed that I went into the ministry because I would not now be a successful business person like he thought I could be, and perhaps I could have been. We have this struggle in the discernment and fulfillment of our purpose because of the shame that's in the world. This is what has happened. This is how Satan has distorted everything using his shame induction process, leading us into the shame to sin so we experience the shame dynamic and start playing the shame game, which has all of these knock-on effects. Well, if we just stopped there, I'd feel kind of depressed and probably ready to kill myself or something. But thank God, God didn't leave us there. And if we're going to overcome shame, we also must understand how Jesus Christ vanquished shame in the cross so we can live. Jesus Christ vanquished, conquered, destroyed the power of shame in his cross so that we can live overcoming shame in relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus accomplished all of this in the cross. How did he do that? First of all, he became fully human, but fully God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And what is the purpose? The purpose is to reconcile to himself all things through the blood of the cross. So Jesus in his cross is determined to reconcile all of creation to himself by his blood in the cross. That means setting creation free from Satan's shame induction tactics from the shame dynamic and the shame game that causes so much destruction in our lives and in our world. And it's only Jesus in the fullness of his humanity as well as Jesus in the fullness of his divinity that could do this. But that's exactly what he did in the cross. He conquered, he vanquished the power of shame. And more specifically for you, for any follower of Jesus, he reconciled us in his body by his death. He reconciled us in his body by his death. In other words, if you are a follower of Jesus, he has brought you back into this proper relationship with God, with your purpose, with the way that God has created you. Notice, what he has done, he has restored the worth of every human being that was corrupted by sin and shame. Our worth is not restored because we're good people. Do you know, I have no sense of worth whatsoever because I'm a pastor or a preacher. My worth, 100%, comes because Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. 
Your worth and your value to God is because Jesus died on the cross for you. And this is true of every human being. Even those who refuse to follow Jesus, he died for them. That doesn't mean they get free from this without faith in him, but he did die for them to restore the worth and value of every human being created in the image of God. And so he has done that for us. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ where you've surrendered your life to him, you have that worth and that value restored to you because of that relationship. Not because you're a good churchgoer, not because you're a good Christian, not because you read the Bible, but because of that relationship. You are now in Christ, and Christ is in you, in union with Christ Jesus. He has done this in his body that was broken and, and, and the blood that was shed on the cross. And notice then what Paul says, he does one other thing. He does, does this so he can present us, check, check this in Colossians, he presents us as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Holy, blameless, above reproach. If you are in Christ, you are right now, by virtue of the fact that you're a Christian, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Notice how that coincides with what happened to Adam in the garden. Adam says, I was naked, so I was afraid, so I hid myself. Jesus says, you are holy, covering your nakedness. You are blameless, covering your fear. And you are above reproach, covering your need to hide yourself. I don't have to hide myself before God. You don't have to hide yourself before God. I don't even have to hide myself before you. Because you know what? In Christ Jesus, I am holy, blameless, and above reproach right now. Jesus has covered my nakedness. Jesus has taken away any need to be afraid. Jesus has clothed me in holiness through faith in him by his grace. Isn't that extraordinary? This is what Jesus has done. This is why we can overcome the power of shame. Jesus has broken it in the cross. Jesus has taken it all on himself. All of the power of shame, all the power of sin has been paid for there in the cross of Christ for any who would come and receive. So how do we respond to this? By grace through faith, we do what Paul had said to the Corinthians there. He said, I don't want you to be led astray like Eve was from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ who is our bridegroom. We must not allow Satan to induce shame in us by his shame induction strategy so that he can lead us astray. Instead, we must continue in our sincere and pure devotion to Jesus because it's all about Jesus. It all comes from Jesus. And if you're a Christian, it is all yours right now through Jesus. Just continue devoted to Jesus as his bride. And notice that that is a corporate and individual reality. 
Not only has your shame personally been covered by the blood of Jesus, but our shame corporately has been covered by the blood of Jesus. Not only are you worthy individually, but we're worthy corporately. Not only are you holy and blameless and above reproach individually, but we are holy, blameless, and above reproach corporately. And so our sincere and pure devotion to Christ leads us to believe that we are worthy because Christ died for us. No other reason. Jesus died for me. That makes me worthy. We start to believe that now we are enough in union with Christ. We're not enough by ourselves, but in union with Christ, Christ makes us enough. He unites us with Him in His perfect humanity, and He unites us with one another in His perfect humanity so that we are now enough. We are now complete in Christ. We don't need anything else. You don't need to be better. You don't need to be taller. You don't need a, uh, to, to have a certain relationship in your life. You don't need anything but Jesus to be the complete person with other people that God God has created you to believe, to be. And we believe that we are connected to one another and to Jesus Christ. We have that fundamental connection that will last for all eternity. This is our reality. And the challenge for us is just to continue in that sincere and pure devotion to Jesus because it's all about Jesus. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, you have this in Jesus Christ for yourself right now. I don't know about you, but I am ready to go to war with shame. Isn't it time that the body of Christ rise up to say, Satan, shame no more. And isn't it time that we rise up as the body of Christ saying, we will no longer succumb to shame. We will no longer tolerate it. We will no longer use it. We will no longer advance it, but we will stand firm and strong in Jesus Christ to share in Christ's vanquishment of sin, to share in Christ's victory over sin. Are you ready to do this? Are you ready to make this commitment in your life that I will now overcome shame? Jesus has given me everything that I need. And now I am going to overcome shame. I'm not going to use it as a weapon. I'm not going to tolerate it in my relationships. I'm not going to tolerate it in my life anymore because Jesus Christ has set me free. Are you willing to do that? If you are, stand to your feet. Show some excitement. Because Jesus Christ has done this. I, don't, I know I don't normally get this way. But we have to take a stand. We have to see shame destroyed. We are going to be a church that destroys the power of shame. We are going to be a church that stands strong in Jesus Christ, knowing that Jesus has set us free from shame. And we want to be individuals who live in freedom, overcoming shame. Shame is always going to be around us. Shame is always going to be in the world until Jesus comes again. But just like Satan is in the world until Jesus comes again, we're not going to give in to Satan, so why should we give in to shame? And so together, we take a stand. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You that in Him, all Your fullness was pleased to dwell. 
And we thank you that in the cross of Christ, he has reconciled us. He has reconciled all things back to the original purpose. To live without shame. And Father God, I pray that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fall upon us now and fall upon us as we worship you to believe that what you said is true. That Jesus has vanquished shame in the cross of Christ. And Jesus has vanquished shame in our lives. And we stand before you committing ourselves to this purpose for the glory of Jesus to see shame destroyed in our fellowship, to see shame destroyed in our relationships, to see shame destroyed in our lives. So that not only can we live overcoming shame, but so that thousands of others might come into relationship with Jesus and also experience freedom from shame. We love you and praise you. Holy Spirit, just fall upon us and show us how you want us to advance this mission so that people all over the city will know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and your kingdom might advance to the glory and praise of Jesus. We thank you, we praise you, and we worship you and do all this in Jesus' name. Amen.